This is chapter 130 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Educating girls in East Africa, saving tigers in India, and inspiring future wildlife conservationists. This week, we're featuring books that give back. In 1999, Juliet Cutler left behind her family and the comfortable life she knew in the United States to teach at the first school for Maasai girls in East Africa. Now, 20 years later, she's written a memoir about her time in Tanzania and the lessons she learned from the girls she taught. We spoke about Among the Maasai, proceeds of which go to support the education of at-risk Maasai girls. Why is the time right now for writing a book about your experiences back then? I've been engaged with this school for 20 years now, so that two years stretched into 20. Uh, I don't live there anymore, but I return on an almost annual basis to support the school as well as a SAFE initiative there, which is the brainchild of local folks who have come to learn that sometimes giving a scholarship to a girl is not enough uh, to help her complete school, that she really needs additional support around that scholarship, because if she doesn't feel safe at school or if she's not safe at home, then she's probably not going to finish school. So the SAFE initiative is helping girls by providing safe housing, counseling services, uh, working with teachers to give them the additional skills they need to counsel these girls, and then also facilitating conversations with mothers and daughters around issues of safety and empowerment, and also with fathers and sons around their role in creating safe families and communities. So that's my ongoing work there. So uh, while I lived on the ground two years, 20 years ago, um, I remained very engaged in uh, this particular place in Tanzania known as Monduli. One of the biggest themes of your book is this idea that helping others and empowering others isn't always the same thing. That wasn't an easy lesson to learn, was it? It was not. I think as Westerners, we frequently frequently come into places where there is economic poverty and we come with our goals and our outcomes and maybe even our own agendas and timelines. And what we find when we get there is that local leaders really know the problems that they face intimately. They know the culture and they are equipped to address those problems. What they frequently lack is the resources and support to do that work. And so one of the things that I talk about in the book is a Swahili phrase that goes bega kwa bega, which translates as shoulder to shoulder. And so my philosophy has really been how can I come in and walk shoulder to shoulder with leaders on the ground there uh, to help them solve their problems rather than sort of uh, be the Western leader who comes in and and saves, which I think is a model that sometimes uh, we bring with us when we come into places like this. The stark contrast between life in the in the U.S. or the Western world and sub-Saharan Africa really weighed heavily on you. Have you become less resentful of the the privileged lifestyle that we lead? And if you have, have you managed to get over that? That's a great question and a little bit of a difficult one to answer. I think. Um, Certainly one of the things that affected me the most when I first arrived in Tanzania was I had never seen poverty quite on the scale that I saw it there. And that was uh, a shock to me. And it was something that um, sort of overwhelmed me. It, It made me ask questions about how can I as one human possibly do anything of consequence uh, when the poverty is, is this deep. 
And so uh, I also came then to recognize my own privilege, the things that I just take for granted because I am white and I am an American and I was born in a different place on the planet. Um, And so, yeah, I still ask those questions. I still spend a lot of time thinking about the ways I live my life now and what the impact of that is on those folks around me. In addition, I've come to define poverty a little bit more broadly than I did probably when I first arrived in Tanzania. You know, I think initially I defined poverty almost purely in economic terms. And what I've come to see after uh, being involved in Tanzania for so many years is that while there is deep economic poverty there, there is a real wealth of community. And so I think a little bit about some of the things we suffer from in our own country, isolation, sort of uh, highest suicide rates among young people on record. And to me, that begins to look a little bit like a different kind of poverty. And so I think about the ways in which we in our culture have some things to learn from our friends uh, across cultures who have managed to maintain that really deep sense of community and support that uh, seems to be waning in our own culture. What's the best way to help communities like the one you've dedicated so much of your life to? I think the best way to to help communities uh, like this is to empower local leaders. I think uh, we need to be invited in as Westerners. Our help needs to be wanted. And and when it is and when we can empower local people to address their own problems, I think that that's uh, one of the ways that we can really help a community that suffers from economic poverty. I think the other piece of it is there is uh, a wealth of research in international development around what happens when you educate women and girls. It not only transforms the lives of individuals, but uh, reduces infant mortality rates, improves health care, lifts entire families and communities out of poverty. And so you earlier on in this interview about the difference between helping people and empowering people. When we educate women and girls, we really give them the tools to transform their own lives and to chart their own courses. And I think there's tremendous power in that. Let's talk about the girls that that you cross paths with. Because as much as this is a book about you and your experiences, they really are the core of your story. And it's amazing the things that you mentioned a little bit earlier, the things they went through to get this education and the things they're able to do because of it. Right. The book recounts the story of several young women uh, whose lives intersected with mine and the stories of how they came to get to school and what that meant to them. And they are very dramatic stories of uh, a young woman who lost her father, who had supported her education, but then when her brother took over as head of household, he saw more value in traditional Maasai ways, which include circumcision for girls at puberty, which is illegal in Tanzania, but is still practiced among the Maasai. And then once girls are circumcised, they're deemed ready for marriage. And typically these marriages are arranged uh, and to men who are significantly older than these girls, often as a second or third wife. So Girls in this kind of setting don't have 
any say over their destiny in many ways. And so the story of this particular girl is her brother sets up an arranged marriage, trades cattle for her. And at that point, she runs away and goes to the capital of Tanzania, which is Dodoma, to look for a member of parliament who she'd heard on the radio. Uh, He was talking on the radio in Tanzania about the importance of education for girls, and she thought perhaps he could help her. So she had the audacity and the determination to show up at his office, Uh, so running away from home, finding a bus to Dodoma, getting there, finding his office, and telling him her story. And this man um, empathized with her and helped her to find a place at a a school in northern Tanzania. And um, she, you know, she ultimately became successful, finished school. And so, you know, the book is, is full of stories like this. The history of the school is is full of stories like this of girls with tremendous determination um, who face some pretty extraordinary obstacles to their success. You know, I know you were there to teach them English, but what did they teach you? Well, I think they certainly taught me a lot about determination and uh, really that I think when you believe something is possible, it is, it is possible. I mean, they the, the, the determination uh, to complete school, to make a life for themselves, a life for themselves uh, out, outside of sort of the deep poverty and oppression they face is, is something, you know, when I sort of get down about <laughs> whatever little problem I have in my life, uh, I reflect on that and certainly I'm inspired by, by that. 20 years later, has the situation changed for girls? I think there still is deep need there. There are many girls who don't have an opportunity to go to school, who want to go to school. I think things are shifting a bit among the Maasai in terms of their attitudes toward education and towards the role of women within their culture. This school really grew out of the vision of a few Maasai elders, and this was in 1995 that the school was established they really saw that things were changing for the Maasai. The Maasai are semi-nomadic. They've traditionally herded cattle and goats in the Great Rift Valley. But as land has been privatized in Tanzania, they've lost access to traditional migratory routes for their cattle and goats. So they're becoming uh, more sedentary, living in, in one place and you know, in addition, climate change, even 25 years ago, was already beginning to impact them. We lived through a couple of droughts while, while I was there. And so, and in addition, now if you go to Tanzania, uh, you will see the Maasai herding their cattle, but you will also see them talking on cell phones. So globalization and technology was also impacting the Maasai. And these elders really do that if their culture was going to survive into the 21st century, they needed to raise up the next generation of leaders. And those leaders were going to need to have some different skills than those leaders had had in the past. And so Maasai boys also have trouble getting to school. It's uh, expensive to send children to school in Tanzania because there isn't a robust system of public secondary education. 
but they also knew that girls historically had not had any opportunity for education. So they created this Maasai Secondary School for Girls as a very special place where girls could go and gain an education where they would raise up new leaders who would be men and women for this next generation. I imagine there are going to be more than a few people who, after listening to this interview, are going to want to do something to help. What can they do? Well, if they buy the book, they're already doing something because all proceeds from the sale of the book are going back to support scholarships at this school, as well as the SAFE initiative, which provides support services to girls uh, in eminent risk of violence of one kind or another. So that's a simple thing you can do. If you're interested in doing more, you can visit my website, julietcutler.com, and you'll find a lot of information on there about the impact of education for girls who live on the margins. But you'll also find links to a couple of nonprofit organizations that are based here in the United States that are supporting this work in Tanzania. We've been talking to Juliet Cutler. Her memoir is Among the Maasai. Thank you so much for talking to us about your experiences and ways that even though we feel so far away that we maybe can help make a difference. Right. Thanks, Lisa. I think uh, one thing that I've sort of learned is that even if you help just one person, you're doing something. I think it's easy sometimes to get overwhelmed. One person, it makes a difference. So thank you for having me. Naturalist, explorer, author, and filmmaker Paul Rosalie has spent the last decade trying to preserve the Earth's endangered ecosystems and species. In his fictional debut, he pulls together what he calls moments, truths, and legends to tell the incredible story of a young Indian girl's quest to save a wild tiger. He tells us what inspired his book, The Girl and the Tiger. This story came from 10 years of tracking tigers and elephants through South India and I feel like this is the most incredible story about wildlife that I've ever encountered because what these animals are doing to survive is just incredible because there's so much human civilization out there and so little forest left that these animals are having to fight every day. And I think that for me, the girl and the tiger was just the the most authentic way to bring people into the world of, of these animals. And you are, you're talking about the, you know, the, the will and the, the fight of survival of these animals, but there's also the people who are trying to help them. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been in conservation for oh, almost 13, 14 years now, and it's, it's just amazing what everyone's doing to try and help the animals. I mean, because while so many people have no idea what's going on um, throughout India, there's such amazing conservationists. And of course, this book, the whole story was inspired by a very young girl who actually emailed me and said, I'm going to save these, you know, a mother tigress had gone missing. And she emailed me because she knew I was a wildlife guy. And she said, I'm going to save these, these tiger cubs. I need to know what to feed them. I need to know where to bring them. Like, you got to give me this information so I can go out and do this. <laughs> and that, and that really set off, set off the whole thing because that level of compassion where most people are like, Oh yeah, you know, worried about their own lives and very disconnected from wildlife. Um, some people are very, very awake to the fact that, you know, we're not the only creatures on this planet. And I love the story you tell about her and how you first met her and how she sort of, you know, you're already a person out there trying to fix the world or get people to be aware of what's going on. And she opened your eyes even more to the level that humans can have, the compassionate levels that they can have. 
Yeah, I mean, I've I've come I've become kind of not heartless, but you know, you get calloused when you work out in like the jungle and you're with poachers and, and hunters and you see all kinds of stuff and you got you got to get used to that if you're going to survive out in the wild places. But um, when this girl Isha came, she was she was so compassionate. I mean, she was rescuing butterflies out of our kitchen. You know, the butterflies get stuck against the the window screen, and all all everyone else just walks by it. All the adults just go on with their day. This girl though was like, well, you can't just let them die there, you know. And she would spend her day with a jar, saving them. But but seeing her compassion, then, uh, you know, the next thing I knew, I was there with a jar saving butterflies from the window screen, and I still do it to this day. Even you know, she's left, and I I I still do it. Um, and that's, and that is why really that was the catalyst that, that created the Isha in the book, because she has that inspiring quality. I mean, the, the girl in the book, you know, she gets this tiger and she's the one that sets everything in motion because without her determination, the book would end in the first few minutes, you know, the tiger dies, tiger dies, that's it. Um, but I think that that's such an important message for young people and for readers. I mean, look for young people, certainly, but young people still have that, that that courageous like heroism where they're like I'm gonna go do something no matter what and then I feel like as adults we start going well you know I'm kind of busy today and you know someone else will do it <laughs> like we get kind of blunted and I think that you know having having a, a character especially a female character um, who who stands up for the, for the wild and for the animals it, to me is just so important. You know, I think a lot of people will think of that other book about a child in the Indian wilderness, which is the Jungle Book. Uh, yes. What yes. Sort of We've influence... been getting a lot of comparisons there. <laughs> I'm sure you have. But did that book influence this one? Absolutely. I mean, I thought, I felt like I was kind of writing, you know, kind of an answer to Jungle Book because when I was a kid, I loved Jungle Book. But then as I got older, certain things started to bug me. Like, you know, of course, when Kipling wrote Jungle Book, the jungle was everywhere. There was no concept of conservation or extinction or climate crisis. And, um, you know, so the, that to me was like, well, you know, what would be happening in the jungle now? And the other thing was, you know, back then he made the tiger, the bad guy where today, you know, back in 19, back in 1900, there was a hundred thousand tigers today. We're hovering just around three or 4,000. They're almost extinct. They're almost gone. So to me, having sort of a modern day jungle book, you know, where, where the king of the elephants, Hathi, um, you know, is, is chained and blind and where the, the tigers are refugees. Because this is the reality. I mean, this is a fictional, for everyone listening, I mean, this is a fictional book, but all the themes and all of the events are very real. I mean, it's just, it's, fiction allowed me to take, take everyone on this journey. But yeah, so to me, yeah, when they call it like a 20th century, 21st century jungle book, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. But I think you know, they they say write the book that you always wanted to read. Well, I think Jungle Book would be more fun with a with a female character, and uh, and and I just can't take the tiger as the bad guy. So, so I, I tweaked it. <laughs> so I did it. <laughs> I I wanted to ask why you chose fiction instead of nonfiction, which you've written before. And I mean, you you have the knowledge, you have the experience to write this story about what's happening in India and other places in the world as a nonfiction book, but why did you choose fiction as your vehicle? Um, I chose fiction because I just, I think that it's more emotional. I think that stories have the power to really change the way people's, 
the way people's hearts feel. You know, it's, you know, nonfiction. You can say, okay, there's 3,000 tigers and they're, and they're distributed across 11 countries. And that's information. That's fine. But it doesn't, to me, that's, it's more difficult to hit people on an emotional level. And to me, taking people on this journey in a fiction sense allows me to enter inside the animal's mind and teach people about the way these animals survive. It, it, it allows me to teach, bring people into the lives of tribal people and talk about what's happening with them in the forest. So fiction actually just freed me up to actually tell the truth a lot better than I could have done through a documentary or through a nonfiction book. So I really just wanted to bring in all the things that I'd seen in the field. And this actually, again, it's funny because it's fiction, but it allowed me to do it in a more authentic and truthful way, I think. Because I think that when somebody gets to the end of this book, they will have been through the life of a refugee tiger. They would have been with the elephant herds. They would have seen the conflict between the tribal people and the forest department in India and how corporations are trying to destroy the forest. And it's like you would, you'd really come away from this book with this huge understanding of what's going on in, in South Indian wildlife conservation. Um, and through it all, if, you know, if I, can, if I can hit people on an emotional level with the story, I mean, for me, you know, the books and movies I watched growing up turned me into who I am, honestly. So... I think I think that you know making this a novel was just the way to go. There was never any other question, and and of course because it did really begin with 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 this girl messaging me and saying I'm going to rescue tigers. It just planted this seed in my head. I said this is just an amazing story that needs to needs to be out there. You know, I walked away from reading the book kind of hopeless, kind of wondering really? if well, <laughs> wondering if if we're doomed to this world where you know humans are just going to keep taking and taking and taking, even yeah. if there are the few people out there who are really fighting to not let this happen. Is there a way for humans and nature to coexist in this modern society? I absolutely think there is. And I, we're at a very critical and very dangerous time in terms of like a tipping point, like we're pushing things really far. But I've seen so many things that are, and that's the cool thing about being a conservationist is I get to work with people doing amazing work all over the world. And it gives me hope. Um, in South India, they, you know, there's places where they've outlawed the, the corporate trawlers that destroy the whole oceans. And they just said, look, we're going to do our sustainable, like natural fishing me methods so that we continue to have fish. In the Great Smoky Mountains in the U.S., we have elk back. After 200 years, we have elk. They're back. Bald eagles in the 1970s are going extinct. They're back. Humpback whales are doing great. New York, where I live, the waters are becoming so much cleaner that the oceans are bouncing back. We can, nature, nature takes care of itself. We just have to stop the corporations and the people we put in office and our consumerism from destroying it. It's really not actually that complicated. It's kind of just like if we can just do a little better, everything will be fine. It's really, it doesn't need to be a tragedy. And as part of that, um, I teamed up with the publisher, with Owl Hollow Press, and for each copy of The Girl and the Tiger that we sell, we're actually going to be donating a dollar towards creating like a way station for migrating tigers. So as they move through South India, we're going to try and create this forest reserve in a strategic place where we can have some deer and make sure that there's clean water and a lot of privacy and that the tigers can stop there. So we're actually trying to make this book into a bit of an action thing. So it really... You know, I think I think there certainly is hope, man. And in India's tiger numbers are increasing, actually. But unfortunately, there's also like, you know, I think eight or nine other countries that have tigers in them that are not doing as well. There's just just, you know, a scattering of a, a few one or two tigers there. Um, so, yeah, it's really scary, but it's but we do have the tools and the knowledge and the inspiration to, to, to fix it. So that's what I've seen from being out there in the field.
All right. You make me feel a little bit better then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is that really what you want readers to take away, that there is hope and that there are things that we can do? Yeah. I mean, I want, you know, I think the way I see it is, is it, it's, it's a tough break, you know, between, between hope and, and hopelessness. Um, and, and, and that's, I wrote it with, you know, sort of not trying to do anything different than, than what I've absorbed straight from the field. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of challenges out there, but you can do stuff and there's good work being done. And, but, but, it, but no one else is going to do it. That's, I think that's, I think that's the most important message of the book is that, you know, Isha realizes that no one else is going to save this tiger unless she does it. And then when she gets to the forest, you know, all the things that happen and she's, and she's sitting there going, wow, I, I can't even leave it alone. You know, now that I've created this thing, I have to protect it. And it's, that's what I've seen in my life as well. I mean, I protect with my NGO jungle keepers, we protect 30,000 acres in the Amazon. And, you know, when I go to sleep and I go, okay, at least in that part of the forest, the animals are safe. But then of course I'm thinking about, Oh, you know, well, what if something changes and, and they get in, you know, poachers get in or loggers get in or, you know, what about the other places that we're not protecting? And it's like, it's a lot of work, but, but, you know, we've been, so we've been seeing all over the world that people are, people are standing up for their rivers, people are protecting forests. And it's really, it's really just a matter of saying no to projects that destroy things and saying no to products, you know, like, like, um, the palm oil in Indonesia, we've been saying people have been protesting against the corporations that are destroying Indonesian rainforests and it works. They're corporations. They have to make money. If we're not going to buy, if we tell them we're not going to buy your products, if you're destroying rainforests, they'll become the biggest conservationists in the world if they get paid for it. You know, and we have that power. It's just a matter of you know, being having our eyes open and having this be something that we talk about as a people. That's like in our culture that we that we deal with on a day to day. Say like you know we're not going to let. You know we're not going to let other people do this. I mean I, I saw it as as a recently in India where they put a. They put a factory on the side of this river that polluted everything downstream. And then like 20 million people downstream, they didn't have irrigation for their crops. They didn't have drinking water. The fish were all dead. And it was like, you just ruined the lives of 20 million people because a few guys got rich building a factory. It's just that, like that type of stuff should just be in, the, in history, man. That should be stuff that never happens again. We just, it's, it's simple, simple things. It's actually, it's funny because somebody asked me to do a TED Talk uh, not that long ago, and I said, "What am I going to give a TED talk about? Not cutting down trees? They're supposed to be ideas worth spreading. My <laughs> idea is so simple." I um, think it, you know, if anything, I think people can realize or or, or take away that you know it's not up to somebody else. No, someone else isn't going to yeah. take care of it. Yeah, and that you know, people go back and forth on whether one person can make a difference, but I think what you're saying is yes, one person can. Oh, absolutely. And then, and that's what this book is about. And that's what I, my, you know, my, all of my outreach and education is about. I mean, I'm a kid from Brooklyn and I, I went to the Amazon and started working with local people. And like I said, now I'm protecting 30,000 acres. I mean, I'm all, just, just based on, on bringing people together and inspiring them. You know, now we're trying to make a, a tiger reserve. A 15-year-old girl sent me an email because she was determined to save a tiger, and it turned into a book that might turn into a movie that is now turning into a tiger reserve. I mean, these are so many examples of one person taking action, and it, it has giant consequences, man. I've seen this over and over. Look at Jane Goodall. Her whole life has been in, in you know educating children and people all over the world, and she's like a U.N. ambassador for peace. One person can make a big difference. So tell us again where we can get the book so that we can help you out with your your mission to raise this money for the, the yeah, Tiger Way Station. 
The book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Of course, I always recommend ask your local bookstores um, to order it for you. I'd always always love to support the local bookstores, but every copy of The Girl and the Tiger, we're donating $1 um, to create a tiger way station in India on the ground. So once you read the book and you understand what it's all about, then you'll you'll be part of, of the of the the fixing the problem for these wild animals. And I just uh, I just want I you know I thought I, I I've always wanted to read a good adventure story that has a female character that has you know just hardcore crazy adventure. And I think that this this was my best shot at it. So I, I truly truly hope everyone enjoys the book. I think it lives up to that expectation. Paul Rosalie, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us about this book and what you're so passionate about. Thank you so much for having me on and getting it out there. As a representative for the animals, thank you on behalf of them, too. Thank you, thank you. The San Diego Zoo is known the world over for its wildlife conservation efforts. A large part of that mission is educating the public, and one way the zoo is doing that is through its Hope and Inspiration series, a collection of children's books that share the incredible true stories of some of the zoo's animal ambassadors. I spoke with author Georgian Irvine. The whole idea behind them is if a child can meet a particular animal, like let's say they can get to know Karen the orangutan, the hope is that it will inspire them to care about all orangutans as well as other wildlife and inspire them to really help San Diego Zoo and other conservation organizations lead the fight against extinction. So the books also teach children about real life through animals. And so right now we have four books in the collection and each one is unique. I know that the work that is done at the San Diego Zoo, you deal with all sorts of animals and so many animals. How, how do you choose which particular animals would make a good book? The biggest thing about the stories, and let me say, people will say, well, you have thousands of stories that lend themselves to the hope and inspiration topic. And to that I say yes, but the, the key to these stories is actually having the photos that document a story from beginning to end. And so I have to keep my eyes open for something that I think might be a good story. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, a current a book that I'm doing right now that won't be out for a while is about a baby tiger who was being smuggled over the border from Mexico to the U.S. And I thought, that sounds like a really interesting story. And so we followed it and photographed the tiger, and it did turn into having enough photos and a great storyline for a book. Um, sometimes we follow animals that don't necessarily turn into a book. So it's really keeping in touch with all of the keepers and, and curators and anticipating stories that might turn into a great book for children. Um, one of the books that's out right now is called Rooks and Reina, and it's about a cheetah and dogs, a story about friendship and miracles. And these two animals are what we call ambassadors, and they're best friends. People say a cheetah and a dog, best friends. It's like, yes, cheetahs have more of a dog-like disposition than a big cat. Anyway, they became fast friends, and Ruxa grew with crooked legs, and our vets never thought he'd be able to walk, let alone run. And they did surgery, but nobody told the cheetah that he couldn't run, and he ran anyway. So that's that's a miracle unto itself, and, and the dog stayed by his side. But then the dog got terminal cancer, 
and we stopped all treatment on Raina. And we even got a puppy in hopes that the puppy would lift Raina's spirits and also become friends with the cheetah for when Raina died. And a few months go by, and Raina didn't die. And it's like she doesn't even seem sick anymore. And we re-examine her. Two of the tumors have disappeared. One is small enough to do surgery. Uh, then she goes through chemo. And this was several years ago. And now the duo is a trio. We have Rooks of Raina, and then that puppy has grown up. And that, that's just an incredible, inspiring story for kids. And it is illustrated with photos so they can really get to know the animals. And also maybe be able to pick them out when they come and visit the zoo. Absolutely. Rooks and Raina often will go on walks around our San Diego Zoo Safari Park, and we have something called Cheetah Run every day at 3 o'clock. And what's amazing is they let the cheetah run off-leash and chase a lure. And it really takes just a couple seconds to run 100 yards, and people blink, and it's like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea that Cheetah could get to that speed. And so they'll often see Wuxa and Raina um, doing the Cheetah run. And Raina runs, but she's very slow compared to a Cheetah, of course. But, but it is fun, and people can visit the zoo and see Karen the orangutan at the orang exhibit. She loves to sit by the window and, and interact with people. And then, of course, we have fabulous Floyd, who is another animal ambassador, and, and people can also see Floyd at the zoo. And if they do a behind-the-scenes tour, sometimes they're even allowed to feed him, which is pretty cool. You know, you touched on it lightly. We're, we're talking about animals, and it, it's really about conservation. But at the same time, you're teaching kids some difficult lessons here, whether it's surgery, dealing with a terminal illness, dealing with death. That's pretty heavy stuff. It is heavy stuff, but we do it in a way that works for children. If Raina had died, you know, we often will debate, would we have done the Ruxa and Raina book? And and I don't know. I've, I've heard people say you really should maybe do a book where an animal does die and you can teach children to grieve. We haven't gotten there yet. But the newest book, I think, will resonate with a lot of families. It's, it's about a baby monkey named Mosi Musa, and it's about a baby monkey whose mother rejected him and who was raised by his grandma. And I think in this day and age, uh, you've got a lot of grandparents who are very integral to the family units. And I think that this book, like I said, will resonate with a lot of families. I'm going to guess you've always been a longtime animal lover. Oh, yes. Ever since I was a child, I was actually born in San Diego, which I know is very rare. And I grew up going to the zoo I had what you might call a 12-year leave of absence up in Anaheim, but came back to San Diego, and I got my zoo job right out of college, and I've been working with San Diego Zoo for more than 40 years, and animals are my passion, and I feel that if I can be a voice for the animals and help people learn about them, um, they will help us with our conservation efforts because animals around the world are in really serious trouble in many, many places. And at the back of the books, we have facts about the animals, and we also give them ideas on, on what they can do to help and how they can become, kids can become a hero for wildlife. So, yes, animals are just in my blood now. I travel the world to see them in their native habitat, and, and I'm just very, very devoted. I've devoted my life to being a spokesperson on behalf of animals. They, they, need, they need us. They need all of us to, do, uh, to help them. 
You know, I'd I'd be remiss if I if I didn't just bring up a critical point. I know there are people out there who they're not fans of zoos, of animals being, you know, put on display. What do you say to people right. like that about what the San Diego Zoo does and just in general what conservationists like you are doing? Most zoos today are very involved in conservation work. And as far as San Diego Zoo and Safari Park, we are involved in projects on six continents. We have 300 conservation partners. We've reintroduced 13,000 animals in the wild. And it's really important when people come to the zoo and safari park, they support our work. In addition to that, some people have said to me, well, if I just watch a video about you know, orangutans in Borneo or giraffes in Africa, I, I, I get the picture. And it's like, no. It's not the same as standing next to a giraffe, smelling it, hearing it, looking up at it to really understand how big it is. So animals and zoos can inspire people. And and we have worked to make our habitats very, very natural. And all of our animals are what you might call goodwill ambassadors for their wild cousins. But in addition to that, a lot of the work, a lot of the studies we do with our animals are applied directly back to animals in their native habitat. And an example is we have a couple baby elephants right now. And we have been able, through what we call protected contact, to get samples of the mother's milk, analyze them, and then send that information back to Kenya where we help support an elephant orphanage. And we're able to create a formula that is much more like the mother's milk because of what we did with our elephants at our safari park. So there are lots of things like that that come from zoos. And um, I think that people, if they visit San Diego Zoo and San Diego Safari Park, and if they support the zoos in their own community, I think they will understand that. And, And people might say, well, yeah, but that zoo has a horrible bear exhibit. And it's like, well, that means they need your support to help them build a better bear exhibit. So zoos are really, really important in today's conservation world and are an integral part of the process. And and at San Diego Zoo, we we actually kind of changed our philosophy a few years ago so that we really label ourselves a conservation organization and our vision is to end extinction. And we happen to run a zoo and a safari park. I think that's something that a lot of people need to hear. And, you know, I know this book is meant for children to educate them and hopefully get them interested in carrying on this kind of work. But what is something people can do right now to help and protect and save animals like Karen, like Floyd, like Ruxa and Rena? They can support conservation organizations. Um, you know, it's always important to do your recycling and save water and that sort of thing. But I, but I also think the children can't do this, but I think The adults need to really look at who they're voting for. And if they really want to save the environment, make sure, and I'm not being political, I'm just saying, you know, make sure that when you vote and if you really care that you're voting for somebody who will help protect animals and, and save our environment. I think that's really important as well. And again, I think doing the things you can do locally, recycling or helping with beach cleanups, all of those things are as important, are important as well. And the other thing I forgot to mention 
is that all proceeds from these books go right back into the work San Diego Zoo Global is doing. We're a nonprofit organization, and so these are created by us. So, so every all the proceeds go back to the zoo, and people can get the books on our website, which is shopzoo.com. We've been talking with Georgianne Irvine. She's the author of the Hope and Inspiration series from the San Diego Zoo. Thank you for relating these wonderful animal stories to us. Thank you, Lisa. It was my pleasure, and, and I hope people really enjoy the books. And that's it for us. If you're curious about any of the titles we featured this week, Keep an eye on our Twitter and Instagram account at WCBS880Books for even more info. Next time, we talk to perennial bestseller Nelson DeMille about his latest rip-from-the-headlines thriller. Have a wonderful and satisfying Thanksgiving. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.